Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to 2 Samuel 13. Second Samuel 13, we, we come to a message which is not necessarily pleasant to preach or to think about, both culturally uh, and biblically, however, a necessary message. We, we come to a difficult topic, the title of the message, Rape Biblically Defined. It, it will be a message that will be appropriate for our children. Uh, however, it's a topic um, that um, is... Difficult to consider, yet the Bible considers it quite clearly, quite directly in Second Samuel 13, and we dare not ignore a problem, not just that um, the Bible teaches on that is unpleasant, but a problem um, wherein the concept of sexual sin just pervades our culture. It's everywhere. Uh, rape is defined as forcing another person into sexual intercourse without their consent or against their will. It's a problem which has existed since the very fall of man when a person's unrestrained passions and personal selfishness manifest themselves in an utter disregard for another. Uh, we see it prominent in various cultures around the world. Uh, the ideology of Islam uh, makes it a prominent and acceptable part of their perversion. In the Western world, the concept is still taboo, it's still wrong, but the spirit, the same spirit that drives the concept of rape pervades. And barring a cultural revival, things are only going to get worse. When we read over the course of today's message, continuing through the text, what we see is the beginning of the consequences of David's sin as he despised God's name through his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah the Hittite. Remember last week we considered the death of David's child And the consequences, the natural consequences of David's sin and how it related to God's holiness and the vindication of God's holy character, why it was God could not spare that child, how it is that we understand that even though God took this child, the child was not being punished for David's sin. He was not bearing David's sin. As a matter of fact, the scriptures make it clear that children do not bear the sins of their parents, nor do parents bear the sins of their children. We talked through all of that, but we understood that as... God listed the consequences of David's sin. One of those sins was going to be that a person from his own household would rise up and would, would take his wives, would take his throne. And today's event is going to be the catalyst. We've talked quite often about choices and consequences in this series, haven't we? The choices that we make have consequences, and we can choose our choices, but we can't choose the consequences of those choices. We can choose our sin, but we can't choose the consequences of our sin. Now, David couldn't choose the consequences. 
But we're going to see that David's continued choices are going to set the stage for, for these later consequences. And today's co- topic, today's narrative, will introduce the conflict that will lead to resentment, that will lead to rebellion, that will lead to all of the consequences that God promised upon the house of David for his sin. Today's event is the account which begins a string of pain and injury leading to the fulfillment of these promises. So let's talk about this terrible event and then we'll talk about what it means for us today. In 2 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 1, we read this, And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. The scenario we find introduces us to a man named Absalom, the son of David, who has a beautiful sister named Tamar. Now, it's very significant. As you're reading the Bible, you should always be looking to key in on themes. It's very significant that throughout this passage, Absalom is the first one mentioned, even though Absalom has absolutely nothing to do with the account. But Absalom is the first one mentioned because the account is written in the Scriptures, not just for our edification, but to show us that tipping point in Absalom's life that would lead him down a dark path of anger, bitterness, resentment, murder, and rebellion. And this is the beginning. That's why Absalom is mentioned first. He plays no role in the narrative, but he's central to the focus. Keep this in mind. He will end up being the one who fulfills the judgment of God upon David. And the events that transpire between his sister Tamar and his half-brother Amnon will be that catalyst. So with that being said, let's introduce you to these characters. We have three names listed here. We have Absalom, we have Tamar, and we have Amnon. Now, in order to properly understand their relationship to each other, I reference you all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where we read this. And unto David were sons born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon. Of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom, the son of Meacha, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Uh, now, we, we know that David's first wife was Michael, right? Who was the daughter of Saul. But remember, there was that point where David was bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and David was dancing before the Lord. And Michael was very upset at David because he had taken off his kingly robes and he was effectively, and he put on the priestly garments and he was lowering himself to the, to, to, to the status of the people. And she was upset over the lack of dignity found in in the king for lowering himself to the, the level of the people. And David gets very offended and upset and the scriptures tell us that she had no children. So, Though we see her being the first to have married David, yet we understand that she had never had a child with him and for the rest of her days she would live in that shame of never having any children. Well, the next wife that David took was Abigail, the Carmelitess. The third wife was Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and then wives continued to multiply after that. So David's firstborn son, however, as recorded in Scripture, was Amnon. And Amnon was born of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, so effectively the third wife that David had taken. Yet 
Amnon was born of as the firstborn. Then came Kiliab of Abigail. Uh, we hear nothing more in the Bible about Kiliab. We don't know anything about him necessarily. Uh, then Absalom came third out of a woman named Maaka, who was the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, probably to some degree a political marriage to unite kingdoms. Uh, the king gave this woman to David to make sure that David didn't invade the country like he had to everyone else all around, that sort of a thing. So that gives us a little bit of a perspective on who is who here. Now, through these verses, we learn that Absalom and Amnon are half-brothers, having the same father, David, but having different mothers. We also learn that Amnon is the older brother, as far as the biblical record expresses, he is the eldest of David's children. Tamar is Absalom's sister, according to the text, implying that they shared both mother and father. So Absalom and Tamar were were related completely. They were not half-brother and sister, they were full brother and sister. And Tamar then was Amnon's half-sister, and it would not have been at that time that a relationship that would have been untoward for for a half-brother and sister uh, to be able to get married. That's something that at the time was not necessarily, didn't invalidate a marriage between them. So Absalom, this text tells us, we find, especially in the next chapter in Second Samuel 14, we find that Absalom was, if I can put it this way, he was a fine specimen of a man. The scriptures tell us that he was a man described in the Bible as without blemish. Long, heavy, beautiful hair, uh, a man that was just a fine-looking man. Now, we wouldn't look at a man with long, flowing locks today and say, wow, that's a fine-looking man. But, um, but he was, a, a, he was a, a fine specimen of a man. You can imagine then how beautiful his sister likely was. And the scriptures simply tell us she was fair. She was, she was a pretty lady. We don't know what that means, except that if Amnon was a great-looking guy, she was probably a great-looking gal. We continue in verse 2, and the scriptures tell us, And Amnon, so this is the eldest brother, right, was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. So the text tells us Amnon loved Tamar. Now, from beginning to end, this is not the concept of biblical love, and we'll talk about that. He lusted after Tamar. And there's certain points in this passage where you think there might actually be a little something there. But what always brings me back to the likelihood that there wasn't anything but lust there is that final phrase in verse 2. That he was so vexed because he thought it was hard to do something to her. In other words, he really, really wanted to offend this girl's dignity. But he found it hard because it was his half-sister and she was a virgin. And that would have meant several things. The The implications of that would have been first uh, indulging in his lust would have defiled her. And in maybe there was some sense of decency in his heart that troubled him about that. Secondly, perhaps his own reputation was at stake a little bit. And thirdly, uh, and this is one um, perhaps that is most obvious from the text, he lacked opportunity. Uh, virgins didn't necessarily get in one-on-one situations with people very often. They were kept in their house. They were kept care, cared for. They were watched over. They were, they were the, the responsibility of the father and mother until such time as they became the responsibility of the husband. So they were protected. And especially the daughter of a king, she was protected. 
And so, for, for various reasons, Amnon found it hard, but he was very, very vexed by this. He was sick. He, he became physically sick over his desire for her, but his inability to, or his unwillingness to take her. So he's consumed by his own lust. He lacks the opportunity. Constrained, but deep, that deep lust yet remained. So much so that he's sick. Verses 3 and 4. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Amnon had a friend. It's, it's really interesting when you read this passage. The scriptures tell us that Amnon loved Tamar. And you say, well, that's not, that's not biblical love. And then the Bible says Amnon had a friend. And you say, well, that was not a biblical friend. This companion is actually Amnon's cousin, the son of David's brother. And they were friends. And Jonadab is described as being a subtle man. He's crafty. Uh, the word actually there in the Hebrew text is wise or cunning. It doesn't often speak of deceit when you look at this word and where it comes up in the Hebrew scriptures. More often it speaks of capability or understanding. Clearly his wisdom is not rooted in biblical truth, but he's, he, if we could say it this way, he, he was a man of the world. He understood how things work. And he had a solution to Amnon's problem here is effectively where this is going. He speaks up to Amnon. He recognizes Amnon is not himself. You're the king's son, and yet from day to day you're looking worse, Amnon. You've got problems. You're supposed to be healthy. You're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to be happy. What could be wrong? What's going on? Will you tell me? And Amnon says, yeah, I'll tell you. I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Uh, But as he says this, it's quite clear that he makes obvious what his intentions are, what he desires. Because if if he truly loved Tamar, then, then Jonadab's advice here should have been, well, then... Go ask the king to marry her, right? But that's not Jonadab's advice. That's not Jonadab's advice, which again gives us insight into what Amnon is looking for here. And it's not commitment, marriage, biblical love. Verse 5. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat. And dress the meat in my sight that I may see it and eat it at her hand. So Jonadab is coming up with a plan, a deceitful plan, in order to get Tamar out of her environment, out of her realm of protection, and into a situation where he can defile her. We see what he's doing. Tamar won't, won't expect this. So he's going to make himself sick. Dad's going to come to visit, say, hey, son, sorry you're sick. Is there anything I can do for you? Remember, uh, dad has many wives. Dad has many kids. Dad probably doesn't see his kids all that often. Dad is king. David was uh, on record as not a very good father. So dad's going to come say, hey, is there anything I can do? And he's just going to say, hey, yeah, could you just let Tamar come and, and, and take care of me here? If dad grants the request, then he'll have this opportunity. Amnon puts this into play, and we read about this in verses 6 through 8. So Amnon lay down and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar my sister come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat at her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress him, 
meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down. And she took flour, kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. So David agrees to allow Tamar to care for Amnon. She comes to his house. She sees her brother lying down. She does what she's asked to do. She immediately goes to work baking these cakes for him, making some food, presumably some food that they would have thought was uh, easy for him, maybe depending on what his illness was. Verse 9 says, And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have all... Have out all men from me. And they went out every man from him. So uh, Tamar makes the food, but apparently she actually didn't go in and feed him herself. There was a little bit of a a backfiring in this plan in that she made it for him, but then she had his servants come and actually seek to immediately or directly administer it to him. Uh, she's probably being careful. She's probably trying to keep honor and decorum and decency in check. She she is a virgin. She needs to be careful in this time in her life, and, and she's not protected and these sorts of things. Uh, but Amnon, he, he says, okay, I want all my servants out. All the men leave me. And then in verse 10, he says unto Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. So she does what he asks. She uh, is going to care for him. She's been asked by her, her father and the king to care for him. She's doing so. She brings the, the word meat there oftentimes. It, it doesn't necessarily mean meat as we think of it today. It means food. Uh, and she brings it into the chamber and um, to Amnon, her brother. It seems as though she has no concept of the wicked intent of his heart. Wicked and sinful, however, it was. Verse 11, And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her, and he said unto her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She comes to serve him, and he grabs her, and he says, Come and lie with me. He first asks for her to consent to this sin, for her to willingly defile herself. Had she consented, she would have been guilty just as he. Uh, the phrase that I often use is, Sin loves company. Sin likes to have somebody else agreeing with it. It makes us feel better about our sin. Maybe you've been in a situation before where you've felt guilty about something and then you've seen someone else doing the same thing and it's kind of eased your conscience a little bit. Oh, well, I saw so-and-so doing that, so it must be okay, or I must be okay, or I must not be doing that bad. Run across this in all sorts of contexts. Sin loves company. I'll never forget and this is the context that I regularly give growing up in public schools and in high school. Uh, I grew up in an affluent area. There was a lot of drugs in my school. And it never ceased to amaze me. Drugs were so expensive by how willing people were to share them. That never ceased to amaze me. Alcohol was so expensive and hard to get for some of these kids because they were all underage. But they were always willing to share. Why? Well, because sin loves company. If you're going to sin... You want to have somebody else there with you in the sense that when someone else is sitting with you, it, it, it eases your conscience. So Amnon, he wants consent. He wants her to consent to this, though it would be illicit yet and still. He wants to have her a part of this sinful act. Had she led him into this line of thinking, had she encouraged his lust in any way, she would have, without controversy, borne some fault. But this woman had done nothing to induce such desires in her brother. She had not encouraged sinful thoughts and actions. Yet uh, he sought for her consent, seeking to make this a combined sin of mutual passion 
rather than a sin of personal and unbridled lust. But she would not consent, and instead she appeals to his honor, his decency of which he has little, asking for him but to regard the consequences of his actions upon her. She says this in verses 12 and 13, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly, and I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, Thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Don't force me, she says. This is wrong. Don't you know what this will do to me? Don't you know that I will carry this shame for the rest of my life? And what about you, Amnon? You, the son of a king, will now be regarded as a fool in Israel. You'll be numbered among the unwise. Think about this, Am. Think about what you're doing to me. Think about what you're doing to yourself. Just ask the king, she says. she She had no doubt that the king would have given her to him in marriage if he'd have only asked. But he that's not what he's interested in. She has a lot of patience, a virtue here. She expresses true honor. She calls him to consider the damage that would be done to her, the damage that would be done to himself. She even encourages him. She doesn't say, oh, get away from me, gross. She just says, look, ask the king. Just do things properly. Verses 14 and 15, Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon, this is the, this is the operative phrase, then Amnon hated her Exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. Amnon didn't care because he was driven by lust, not love or anything akin to love. He was stronger than she was, and he dominated her and he forced her. And did you notice that next phrase? I highlighted it, so I hope you did. He hated her exceedingly. He looks at her and says, Okay, now leave. I finished with you. You fulfilled my lust. Now leave. Like a piece of discarded paper or the leftovers after a meal, he's used her and now he's discarding her into the trash heap. He doesn't care for her. He only wanted to use her. He has no regard for her emotions, for her spirit. He has had his way with her and now he has no further use for her. He hates her. He places no value upon her. She's nothing now but used goods. And he tells her to leave. And Tamar is deeply distraught by this. She doesn't understand. Verses 16 and 17. She said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou, hast did, that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. How could Amnon do this to her? Not only had he forced her against his will when he could have just done things the right way, but now he's discarding her. Why, if he loved her so much, would this not be the beginning of the relationship, not toss her out and bolt the door? He doesn't care, though. Because it's not about love. It's literally about hatred. 
So he calls for his servants. He tells them to put the woman out of his presence, and they do so. And now Tamar is left alone to pick up the pieces of her shattered life, her shattered chastity, her shattered virtue, her shattered honor. Verses 18 and 19. And she had a garment of diverse colors upon her, for which... For with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. She had worn the trophy of her virtue on her. A, a brightly colored garment that showed everybody that she was a virtue, virtuous and honorable young lady of the king. Then his servants brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her. And laid her hand on her head and went on crying. She rent her virgin's clothing off of her, the symbol of her honor, that she had waited, sought to do things right. She puts ashes on her head and she cries with her head in her hands as she leaves Amnon's dwelling place. Verse 20. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Amnon, thy brother, been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Absalom hears what happens and he seeks to console his sister. And the scriptures tell us that he took her in. She is defiled now. Her likelihood of finding a husband would be negligible. So he allows his sister to live with him in his house for the rest of his days. He commits to care for his sister as a husband would have done, but now a husband will not do. So she, the scriptures tell us, remains desolate in her brother's house. And Amnon's sin will haunt this innocent woman and will follow her with shame for the rest of her life. And that's our exposition this evening, not a pleasant passage, nor will the application itself be pleasant, but it will be true. We'll begin today with a couple of general observations that are outside the concept of the rape as we considered it, and then we'll give three points regarding rape itself and how it connects to us in this culture. Point number one this evening, as a general point, lust is not love. Lust is not love. Society, culture... And even the Bible uses the word love in many ways. I, I, I'll give you three different contexts for love this evening in three statements. Statement number one, and I'm willing to... I, th- these are personal, true statements to me. No, statement number one, I love cookies. Statement number two, I love gadgets. Statement number three, I love my wife. Three statements, all of which are true. However, their contexts are quite different, aren't they? I love cookies because they fulfill my desire to eat delicious things. They're sweet. I like them chewy. Pretty good warm. I love cookies. My love for cookies depends on my affinity for them. If the cookie does not taste good, there are certain cookies that I don't really love. And if that cookie doesn't taste good, I don't love it anymore. And I move on to the next thing. I have no loy- I don't. I don't feel compelled to be loyal to a cookie that's not going to do what I want it to do. That's not going to fulfill that craving and that desire. I'm not going to eat cookies just for the sake oh, I love cookies, so I've got to eat these things even though I don't want to. It's not going to happen. I love gadgets because they do fun things. I'm a computer science major by, by history. I've been playing with gizmos since a young age. I just enjoy them. 
My love for a gadget depends on my affinity for it, how it looks, how it functions. When it gets old, when it ceases to work well, uh, when it's marred in appearance, I don't love it anymore and I move on to the next thing. Uh, Profit willing, right? Finances willing. Um, You just move on. It's done. I, I, I don't have a particular loyalty to those things. Some do, I don't. Now, I love my wife. And my love for my wife is very different from my love for cookies or my love for gadgets. I love my wife not because I have a natural affinity for it, because I, I, I have this particular vein of thinking that, that positions me to love my wife. I love my wife because I've chosen to love my wife. I've chosen to place all that I am before her. Whether she meets my expectations or not, I love her. Whether she fulfills her obligations or not, I love her. Whether she loves me or not, I love her. I have chosen to love her, so I love her. Now, I kind of like her too, right? So I actually do get along with her. And we are friends and all that good stuff. But, but that is a part of love. But I love her because I've chosen to love her. When the Bible defines love, it defines it as an unconditional choice. Society tries to tell us that love is an emotion. That love is based in emotion. Love is something you can fall into and fall out of. That love comes and goes. It's dependent upon how you're treated. It's dependent on how you feel. It's dependent upon circumstances. But this is not biblical love. Indeed, it cannot be biblical love. Because biblical love is defined by God. The Bible says God is love. So love is defined by that which is God. So we cannot see love as just an emotion. We cannot see love as just an extension of advantage. Or an extension of affinity. Or an extension of convenience. Romans 5 verses 6 and 8 tells us this. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, peradventure, for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This says that when you were at your worst, God loved you. What man man would would love the unlovely? Why would God love the unlovely? Why would God give his life for the ungodly? Not because you deserved it. Not because you earned it. Not because he had a particular affinity for these people that were staring up at him, shaking their fist at him. Not because he was particularly pleased with all of these people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. But because he chose to place his love upon you. And so we read in Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 and 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. You are enemies, but you've been reconciled. Who would do that? Who would die to save those who hated him most? Well, God would, because he loved you. Because he chose to love you. At Legacy Baptist Church, we define love as an unconditional choice to do what is best for the one, for the object of our love, regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstances. Lust has conditions. And that condition is usually beauty, as, as we consider it for a man to a woman at least. 
We lust over the beautiful, and when the beautiful ceases to be beautiful in our eyes, our lusts toward that object cease. We are loyal to that which is loyal to us, to that which brings us advantage. And when that advantage or loyalty ceases, our loyalty likewise fades. But biblical love is a choice that is constant, regardless of and in spite of, perhaps, its object. Biblical love is what sends people around the world to leave their families and their goods and their comforts to give the gospel to people that don't want to hear. Biblical love is what compels a man to sacrifice everything for that woman and that family that God has given him. Biblical love is what drove Jesus to the cross to save sinners, among whom is you and I. Now follow me here. If God is love... So that true biblical love is defined by God. That God's love is the example of what love is. And God loved the unlovely, not because of what we had done for him, not because of advantage, but because of his choice. Then those who have been the recipients of God's love ought to understand love, ought to understand the true meaning of love in a way that the rest of the world would not. At least better than the rest of the world. Likewise, if God is the definition of love, then the farther society gets from God, the farther we ought to expect them to be from understanding what true love is. So the farther society strays from God, the more we should expect society's understanding of love to be shallow, fickle, dishonorable, confused. And may I just say that the society around us does not understand love. They see love as going from one person to the next, enjoying each other's mutual benefits until those benefits are outweighed by cost. They see love as a compromise of willingness to put up with each other's selfish desires as long as we don't get in each other's way. They see love as, what have you done for me lately, sort of a thing. They see love as fleeting, as transient, here one moment and gone the next. These are all emotions deeply rooted in the human experience, make no mistake. But none of them touch true biblical love. Because true biblical love is divine, and divine biblical love is a choice. Of consistency. A determination to place someone else above yourself regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstance. What Amnon felt in this chapter, the Bible calls love, and, and in that earthly sense it is, but it's not biblical love, it's a desire, it's lust, it's passion, it's emotion. But see, the problem is, what Amnon felt had no regard for Tamar. What Amnon felt had no regard for her. And to the degree that it failed to regard her, it fell short of God's love, of biblical love. Our second point in this generalized area here. Friends will make or break you. I tell the young people this quite often. Now, our parents here are, are very good at being careful who, who your children are friends with and such. And uh, your circle is probably fairly small uh, just because of the nature of our church and such. But 
Our passage began with an account of a man named Amnon who was struggling with a problem in his sin nature, contending with a desire to do something that he knew was wrong and not quite willing to do it or able to get himself there. But in verse 3, we read that phrase. But Amnon had a friend. Five words which express a great warning that your choice of friends will affect your life, for better or for worse. Far more than other influences, your friends will make or break you. Your friends will affect you. Now, parents, this doesn't mean you don't allow your children to have friends. Because the consequences of that could be just as bad as having bad friends. But what it does mean is that we ought to all consider carefully who our friends, our children's friends are. And understand that those people will affect our lives. Now don't get so caught up, however, on the word break you that you miss make you. Because a good friend can positively change your life forever. Had Amnon had a good friend, it's quite possible he would have been counseled to take the right path, to do right by Tamar, whether that means to forget about her or whether that means to marry her. He would have moved on with his life, maybe married her, whatever. This account wouldn't have been in our Bibles, at least in this negative light. But Amnon had a bad friend. And his friend pushed that which was sinful. And he took a sinful desire and he encouraged it to become a sinful action. And if you ever have a friend that is taking a sinful desire and encouraging to make it a sinful action that is not your friend and that relationship needs to change dramatically from that moment on. Now, that doesn't mean that you turn around and hate them. You you be kind to them. You be friendly to them, but you do not make yourself vulnerable to them. They don't become someone that you listen to that can influence you. You put them on that next layer out of acquaintance, of someone that you'll talk to, be cordial with, but not someone that you'll listen to or regard their advice. And if I can give any advice to young people with regard to social interaction, it would be that you guard your close friendships and you make them only with those who will help you do right, who will encourage you to do right. For a true friend will have your best interests at heart. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27.9 says, Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart, so doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Proverbs 27.17, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. That's a friend. Proverbs 27 tells you what a friend is. If your friend is dulling your conscience... If your friend is dulling the distinctives of the Word of God, they're not a friend. That should be close. They can be an acquaintance. You can know them. You can enjoy their company on a, on a surface level, but they should not make it into your circle of advisors or of influence. If your friend does not give you wise counsel, you need to mark that friend and be careful around that person. If you're, if a person won't tell you the truth, won't tell you the truth even if it hurts you a little bit, then 
you need to know that they don't have your best interest in mind. If they'll lie to you to make you feel better, they don't have your best interest in mind. We want to find good friends because our friends will make or break us. A good friend can magnify your desire to do right. It can also magnify your desire to do wrong. And if you're wise, you will find friends that will help you do right. Now we transition to the concept of rape itself this evening for three points. I could have made a fourth. I might just mention it in passing. Long before the psychologists had figured out the concept of rape, the Bible called it what it is. And our third point, our first point about rape itself, is that rape is an act of hatred, not love. We need to know this. Rape is an act of hatred, not love. We already defined rape as forcing another person into sexual intercourse against their will. It has nothing to do with love and everything to do with hatred. It's not about a guy that just loves women so much that he can't control himself. It's about a man who loves domination and hates women so much that he won't control himself. Rape is a crime of anger domination. It's about treating women like a piece of meat rather than as a valued treasure made in the image of God. It's about a man who sees a woman in the same light that he would see a car or a tool or a gadget as something to be used, as something to be used up, as something then to be expended. It's about a man devaluing a woman to the extent where he sees her as an object to be used and to be controlled. It's about dehumanizing women for the sake of one's own lustful desires and intentions. Rape is a hate crime in its purest form. It takes the dignity and honor of another human being, that which is exclusively theirs, the intimacy of their own body, the honor of their body, and takes it away from them for the sake of satisfying the desires of one's own unrestrained flesh. It's like taking food from a starving man to feed yourself. It's like taking a coat off of a man on a cold day to warm yourself. It takes that which is not one's own at the expense of another to satisfy yourself. And it's hatred and it's wickedness. Now, rape is not the woman's fault. And yet she will carry the shame of that action for the rest of her life. As Tamar pleaded with Amnon not to do this deed, she asked him, And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? Her shame will follow her. Rape is about something being taken from a woman which she cannot have back. And that's hatred, not love. But let's take it one step farther. The spirit of rape begins well before the act itself. And pervades this culture. And maybe even your heart. And I don't want to be overly dramatic here. But our culture is so inundated. First let me just mention this. Tamar didn't know it. But she was being put in a vulnerable position. Through the deceits of Amnon. Young ladies. Be careful. The ladies in here by and large have pure minds, motives, and intentions. Never assume everyone else does. Be careful. Be smart. If your parents are trying to protect you, understand their protection and trust it and believe it. Be careful. Never assume. Tamar didn't have much of a choice here. Dad told her to do this. She's not at fault for this. But... Never assume 
a young man's right intentions. You don't know his heart. But the spirit of rape begins well before the act itself and pervades this culture. This is an important point. We all agree that rape is wrong. Even society, secular society, believes that rape is wrong. They agree that rape is a bad thing. They wouldn't call it sin because they they reject the concept of God. They would not agree with us on why rape happens. We know it happens because of sin and how to stop it. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they agree that it's wrong. But what society cannot understand, and you and I need to, is that the spirit of rape lives well before the act itself. And it's everywhere in our culture. Uh, third wave feminists have this, this um, phrase called rape culture, that uh, our Western world is pervaded with rape culture. And, and by and large, I reject everything that third wave feminists say because it's a, it's a, a culturally Marxist group of political correctness in order to destroy women. And destroy culture, and that's what their their point is. That's that's the 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 aim of third wave feminism. However, when when they talk about rape culture, what they mean by it is every guy is lurking in a corner looking to destroy women, which is not true. But at the same time, the spirit of rape, which is selfish indulgence at the expense of a, of a woman's honor, is everywhere in this culture, isn't it? We live in a culture that prides itself on liberating women. Women's suffrage. Women can vote. Women can work. They have equal opportunity. They have equal pay. Women aren't just homemakers. Women aren't second class citizens. Uh, and, and women have fallen for this stuff thinking that somehow this liberation has caused them to rise in society's estimation. When in fact society has led women into a situation where they, in the name of their own liberation, have yielded the most important thing that they have, which is their virtue, their dignity, and their honor. We live in a society where girls have cast off the shackles of male protection of women. The term that is used today is a term that you might hear floating around called misogyny. The term misogyny is defined as a dislike or a prejudice against women. It's used very heavily in the culture of third wave feminism. And the movement is is far more about casting off the restraints of morality than it is about women receiving equal rights. According to third wave feminists, any special treatment of a woman amounts to misogyny. It's misogynistic to show preferential care or treatment for a woman, to open a door for her, to to, to, um, treat her with any sort of May I use the word dignity? It's misogynistic for a father to place boundaries on his daughter to try to protect her. It's misogynistic for a parent or a society to encourage women not to do things, not to reveal themselves, not to have freedom of expression. And every natural protection which God has designed to keep women out of the path of dangerous men, men who would seek to take advantage of them, has been torn down systematically by this society in which we live. So much so that as women are regularly placed in situations where they are regarded as little more than a piece of meat to be preyed upon by the lusts of men, they are simultaneously convinced that that very act is a position of liberation. So the cheerleader stands up at a sporting event, proud of her body, glad to have the ability to work as a dancer for supplemental living, without once considering that she is there by the pressure and will of society in order to be a piece of flesh for public consumption. That's what she's there to do. 
And yet women see that as, women have been blinded into seeing that as liberation. They're, they're free. They, they have liberty in society now. They're, they're, they, they are working women. Well, what are you but a piece of meat, a piece of flesh for public consumption? So the female athlete or musician or movie star parades herself in the revealing clothing that they all wear, able to work just like the men, able to make a bunch of money just like the men, without once considering exactly how different her attire is from her male counterparts in sports or in movies or in sporting events uh, of, of all sorts of kinds or in music. And the more successful she gets, the more magazines want her to reveal herself without once wondering why it seems that the cost of fame is her dignity. And if she will not give that away, the industry doesn't want her. And so our young girls parade around with hardly any clothes on, told by society that they should not be ashamed of their bodies and that they have every right to show skin and that this is what it means to be a liberated woman and they never even consider that their quest for liberation, in their quest for liberation, they have been duped into yielding the most precious possession that they have, which is their virtue. So that when a man looks at her, he has a hard time seeing her true self because by his nature he's so distracted by her externals. And so what has been bred into our daughters instead is a great disconnect between cause and effect, between the real and the imagined. A woman is told that she is special, she is liberated, therefore she has the freedom to reveal herself, when by doing so she is actually enslaving herself to the lusts of men. A woman begins to look and act provocatively, and she does so for attention, but she never realizes that the attention that she is receiving by this action and this appearance is not love or even favor, it's just lust in a society that is pushing lust in every avenue. A woman is told that by being flirty and provocative, this is her right, without ever being told that by doing so she is encouraging men to marginalize her, to use her for what she is rather than see her for who she is. A woman is told that a man who would honor her, who would treat her with preferential treatment, seek to protect her from danger is just a misogynist who thinks that women are frail, fragile, and in need of special help, as if they're inferior or they're weak, without understanding that God teaches us that women are special and ought to be treated with honor. That the society of our forefathers, the society which encouraged propriety, and modesty, the society which sought to protect and defend women's virtue and honor, the society which taught young women decorum, did more to honor, protect, and liberate women from the dangers of having her dignity taken away from her than this society could ever understand. This society is drowning in the spirit of Amnon, restrained only by whatever vestiges of biblical morality might be left in it. And as those last bits of morality continue to decay around us, the marginalization of women will continue to rise. Women will continue to see it as a liberation because they are deceived. And apart from the gospel, they will never understand the price that they are paying for the pressures that society is putting on them that they're caving to. 
Pornography has reached epidemic levels in this country. And what is pornography other than men seeing women as objects of lust rather than people? How often does a man look at pornography and wonder about that woman's family or her goals, much less consider that the object of his fantasy and lust is an eternal spirit with an eternal destiny? A woman made in the image of God who will end up somewhere either in heaven or in hell. A man doesn't do that. He doesn't think that. In fact, the whole point is he cannot see her that way if he's going to use her the way he intends to use her. He has to see her as an object if he's going to use her for his purpose of fulfilling lust. She just ha- she cannot be a person. She has to be an object. She must be a piece of meat. She must be a little more than an object if he is going to indulge himself upon her dignity and honor In such a blatant way. Pornography and prostitution are no longer just an industry. They are our culture. Women are expected. To dishonor themselves. Women are expected. To reduce their dignity and virtue. Statistics have revealed that 22% of teenage girls. 11% of girls ages 13 to 16 have sent pictures of themselves with some degree of undress to other people outside their family. In 2013, 273,000 babies were born to women ages 15 to 19, 89% of those being unmarried girls. And the majority of this isn't rape in its purest form. Not against the young lady's will. But only because the girls in our society have been so duped into thinking that their dignity and honor are worth nothing that they are willing to give it up quite quickly. And this is the spirit of Amnon. The compulsion to seek women as objects of lust rather than humans of worth who are made in the image of God. And it's everywhere in our culture. We know this. It's on billboards that we drive by. It's on commercials. It's in the sporting events. It's in our grocery stores. It's all over Hollywood. It's all over the music industry. It's every place where women indulge the the lies of fashion and culture. And the question is, has it touched our hearts? Where has it touched our hearts? Women, have you been duped by an over-sexualized society into some willingness to reduce your virtue, dignity, and honor for the sake of the expectations of society? Men, do you have this very spirit in your own heart, how you look at women? Now, I want to stop here, but one more point needs to be made. And it's an important point. Let's... um encouraged a little bit here. Oh, I have yeah, a slide ahead. Uh, my apologies, but here's our final point. I must have clicked ahead of one point. Final point is this. No, nothing anyone does can change who we are in Christ. And this is important for those who perhaps have experienced to one degree or another this lessening of virtue. For women, for men have been involved in being a part of the problem instead of the solution. I have attempted to express the wickedness and seriousness of this evil in a way that uh, hopefully is understandable but also semi-discreet for the sake of our many children. And I've stated that 
this evil takes something away that cannot be taken back. And indeed, this is true from a certain point of view. Honor, dignity that is forcibly removed is still forcibly removed. But I remind us all of something very important that we learn in regard to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. That when we, when we recognize that we're sinners and we know that we cannot save ourselves and we know that there's a heaven and we know that there's a hell and we know that we deserve judgment, but we know that Jesus paid for that judgment. We know that Jesus paid. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. And we accept that. He, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We are made new in Him. And we are given a position. May I say it this way? We are given a dignity that cannot be taken away. That nobody can take from us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the divine equalizer, making everyone who will accept it just, righteous, and holy in the sight of the true and living God. Though this society would seek to defile you physically, nothing, not you, not Satan, not this society, can defile the honor that you have before God if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You stand before Him holy, unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. You're not dirty. You're not unclean. No matter what anyone has done to you, no matter what society wants of you, you are righteous. You are holy. You are clean. There's no one unqualified for the gospel. There's no one unable to receive it, though it must yet be received. Everyone who accepts it finds themselves made a new creation in Christ, a spiritual creation untainted by the world, untainted by circumstances. We are maimed, we are scarred, we are bruised, we are abused in this life, but in the life to come, all is made new. We're stricken by the effects of sin, but in the life to come, every tear will be wiped from our eyes and we will not even remember the former things. The shame, not quite there yet, the shame which wickedness and sin would seek to impose upon us in this world is not a shame which extends to the spiritual. The way that the world sees you has no bearing upon who you are before God. When Colossians 2.10 tells you that you are complete in Christ, it means that you have dignity and honor which the world cannot touch, rooted in God's love for you and Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It means you have a God who has chosen to place His love upon you, Love which the world may not understand, but which is no less present. A love which sought you for no other reason than that God chose to place His love upon you because He loves you and He died for you and one day you will be with Him for eternity if you've accepted Him as your Savior. Now within this room, I don't know what scars are here, but there are scars, pains, errors, failures, damages. Some I know, some I never will. But God does and... He came to heal wounds, to free captive hearts, souls, and minds, to seek and save the lost, to offer hope for the hopeless, to restore the dignity of those ravaged by the evils of sin in every form. And so I leave you with two verses this evening, written by the same man, inspired, of course, by the same spirit, written one in John, one in First John, one out of the mouth of Jesus himself, one by interpretation of Jesus' words written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. The scriptures tell us in John 16, 33, 
Jesus speaking, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And 1 John 4, 4, where John says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's close with prayer.